0: I recently read about an African king. He reigned in the 14th century in Mali. And he is regaled by most historians as the richest person who has ever lived. Mansa Musa is his name. Say that five times fast. Historians balk at putting a number of value on his wealth, mainly because currency changes so much in the 700 years since his empire, since he reigned in his empire. But a a recent USA Today article, economists have pegged the extreme low side of Musa's wealth at a modern-day equivalent of, at very least, $400 billion. The number is based off of a Malian record the, that was found in the libraries that Musa had commissioned to be built in Timbuktu, part of his reign. But it's mostly based off of his pilgrimage that he took to Mecca in 1324. This was when he essentially took the Western world by storm, or when everybody heard about him. Let me tell you a little bit about that. He ruled over a vast empire that's fairly comparable in landmass to our own United States. Musa departed from his palace on a trip That took over 4,000 miles, and he lived in absolute opulence the entire trip. That's different from your family vacation too, right? Um, His 60,000-member caravan stretched further than the eye could see across the desert, and it included dozens of personal musicians. He had like his own iPhone with him of, of Apple Music. He had over 13,000 slaves, 100 camels that were carrying roughly 90,000 pounds of gold, and 500 personal slaves or assistants. It's strange how it's worded in some of the ancient text. 500 slaves who were so rich in their own right that they wielded golden scepters. Now that is money right there. And throughout this one-year journey, Musa would give major gifts to royal officials and he would even halt his travel to build mosques and libraries along his route. He was so generous with his wealth during the world tour that he was on that he actually destabilized the the economy of the entire country of Egypt because he gave so much money to the poor that the poorest of them were rich by everyone else's standards. Crazy. Every single depiction that we have of Musa from that time period is etched with real gold. You see a a picture of of one of those on the screen right now. And I I don't know that any of us can really wrap our heads around that kind of wealth. Gifts able to throw entire countries into inflation issues. That's insane to me. But you know, world leaders have always had extravagant measures to show how much they deserve their authority. A few years ago in 2019, Thailand crowned a new king. And in what about every newspaper heralded as a humble and a modest ceremony, King Vajiralongkorn, his coronation, cost the country $31 million dollars. We have very different definitions of what humble and modest ceremonies mean, $31 million. But even that is just a drop in the bucket, a mere third of what it takes to inaugurate one of our own presidents in America. We spend vast amounts of money in giving authority to people in our lives. Now, I mention all of those examples, both ancient and modern, to point out how stark a contrast we have here in the story of Matthew chapter 21. I know it's not a direct correlation, but on one side, you have a hajj to Mecca, which costs more money than most modern era countries. And on the other, in Matthew 21, you've got a man riding a borrowed donkey. On one side, you have millions of dollars being given and spent to recognize the authority of a new world leader. And on the other side, You have people pulling off their robes from off their backs to prove their love and devotion to this prophet from Nazareth. Our choir is going to be singing the entire Easter story next week on Palm Sunday, so I wanted to walk us through the events of this special Sunday a week early so maybe we can get a better picture of what happened 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. If I can just kind of briefly catch you up to speed... With the entirety of the biblical account of Jesus' life in like five minutes, I'm going to try to do that. His birth was both nothing of note and the most miraculous event that will never happen again. It was nothing of note and it was extraordinary. Extraordinary. He was born into a modest first-century home. There was nothing really special about his birth unless you knew the scenes of the angelic visions and the visitations that came before. The the fact of his mother's virginity at the time of his conception and birth, those were the things that made his birth story extraordinary. Jesus was God incarnate, the Word made flesh, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, the one and only God-man, But on the surface, take those miraculous events out of the story, and he would have grown up just like any other Middle Eastern child during the Roman rule of Israel. In fact, aside from just a couple of deviations from normalcy, the biblical account of Jesus' childhood was ordinary. I'm sure that the promise of heaven hung close to Mary and Joseph throughout his adolescence, but other than that, We have no other evidence that Jesus grew up any differently from his brothers and sisters in his home. It was probably weekly attendance at synagogue. There was the memorizing of the Torah, annual trips to Jerusalem for the Passover. For 30 years, Jesus lived under the trade of his stepfather Joseph as a carpenter without any strange occurrences ever recorded past the age of 12. But then, as scripture would say, in the fullness of time, or according to God's timetable, is what that means, things began to happen very quickly. You see, he had begun preaching and gathering to himself a number of disciples. Don't get off put by that word, that merely means learners, people who were disciplined under a teacher. These learners who, they left their day-to-day jobs so that they could hear him teach more and more and more. Jesus' message was so filled with Scripture, but it was also so very different from anything that these men had ever heard in their life. And it compelled them to follow him. To mark the uniqueness of his ministry, he did these signs and wonders like no one else had ever done before him. The lame walked, the blind saw, the the lepers were healed, the dead were raised, the shunned were accepted, the demonic were made whole, the hungry were fed, the prodigal was restored, All of these miracles and so many more were accomplished that at the end of his book, John almost writes off as an aside that he supposes that if all of the miracles of Jesus were to be put into all of the books, that the world itself could not contain that library. Jesus did miracle after miracle. And just as important as all of those wonders was the message that he preached There were sermons and parables, illustrations and Old Testament texts that Jesus preached. And he did that to share the good news in a world of very bad news. The bad news is this. You are separated from God. Because of the sin that you were born into and the, the sin that you have chosen to live in your life, you have now been separated by and from a holy God. But the good news is that Christ has come to reunify you with that good God. That doesn't mean that these disciples understood everything that Jesus taught. Not even close. We can ridicule them. We can joke them for being a little dense sometimes about some of the things that Jesus taught. But let's be honest, some of Jesus' teachings were incredibly hard very difficult. He taught radical love, which bordered on the insane to them. We talked a little bit about this in our D6 Sunday school class this morning. We're a little behind schedule. We're still in 1 Peter, so some of y'all were in Mark this morning. But we talked about this whole idea of submission and suffering that we are supposed to live out as Christians. That if somebody comes up and hits you, Jesus says to turn the other cheek. If he's hungry, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, you give him to drink. He even said, Jesus even said, to love your enemies, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who mistreat you. Do you feel convicted yet? Because I do. The very basis of our Christian faith is that we live radically different from the world and these traits that we love in this radical way. And in these commands, the disciples understood the message, but they balked at the actual practice of deferring others before themselves to actually get hurt, to actually go without food, to actually stay thirsty if your enemy is thirsty or hungry. But other times, the disciples just quite simply, they did not know what Jesus was talking about. Like me in math class in the 11th grade. No idea. I loved math until they started putting letters and stuff in it. Then I hated it. Take for example, though, just after Jesus had fed the 5,000 with just five loaves, two fish. Jesus begins to preach to the masses. He says, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. And he likens himself to the manna that fell from the sky, from God to the Jews in the Old Testament. Okay? He essentially was saying, you don't need to concern yourself with food as much as you do and about other things in this life. You need to focus on Me." You need to accept me. And then, Jesus, I don't think there was a spare word that Jesus used. He intentionally spoke everything that he did. Listen to what he says at the closing of this sermon in John chapter 6, verse 53. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. I want you to just kind of sit heavy with that statement that Jesus makes. He is speaking this to Jews who have a very strict dietary uh, life already, and now he's saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, You will have no part with me. It is the understatement of all of the Bible when the disciples hear what Jesus said and then they turned inside to each other and they say, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? It was such a difficult saying to literally swallow that the Scripture says that at that time, many walked away from Jesus. Many. I think the picture here is the 5,000 that were there the day before and had come back for seconds the next day because they got a free buffet every single day. Once he starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which means having a relationship with him, they're like, "Mm, check please, we're gone. No thank you. Many left. Now today, we understand that Jesus was pointing to Himself as the Passover lamb. Our sacrifice for our sins. But then, in that moment, the disciples had no idea what it all meant. And so then Jesus put them even more on the spot. All these people having just left in verse 66, from that time, many of His disciples went back and walked with Him no more. And Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Thousands have just left. Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter, to you love Simon Peter, he answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter essentially says, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) This whole idea of eating your flesh and drinking your blood, but I know you to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, so I will do whatever you tell me to do. I will say whatever you tell me to say. I will go wherever you tell me to go. I believe, Lord. He uses this title, Christ, you are the Christ. It's the Greek word for chosen one. The Hebrew equivalent is Messiah. From their childhood, Jews, they knew about the Messiah. They were taught by their parents about the Messiah. He would be this one who would come in and rescue them from oppression. He would build Israel back into the powerhouse that had once been when King David was on the throne. And the disciple they saw Jesus' miracles, they heard His message, and they they deduced He must be the one. Like Peter. They didn't understand everything that he said, but they knew it to be true. You have the words of life. And that is what led them to Jerusalem that week. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes leading up to this Palm Sunday. In spite of all threats that Jesus had against his life, because he had been publicly correcting the Jewish officials, and he had the audacity to raise a man back from the dead, Lazarus. Jesus was going to Jerusalem for Passover. It was this ancient and sacred feast where a lamb would be sacrificed for the sin of the one who is sacrificing. His disciples, they had resigned themselves to go with him, even if it meant that they must die with him. In fact, we usually call Thomas doubting Thomas because of what happened after the resurrection. But Thomas is the one who speaks up and says that we will go in John 11 verse 16 and we will die with him. There seems to be this overwhelming, impending sense of doom upon all the disciples as they start off for Jerusalem. This does not seem to be your regular, average, run of the mill Passover that they've seen 30, 40, 50, some of them in their lifetime. This is different, somehow. It just proves the, what an emotional roller coaster this last week of Jesus' life has been for them. As they approach the city, Seemingly out of nowhere, Jesus gives this directive to two of the disciples in verse 2. Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has needed them. And immediately, he will send them on their way. Now Mark records that the owners of the donkeys do exactly what Jesus expected. Hey, why are you untying my donkeys? But when the disciples give them this password of the Lord has need of them, okay, you can take them. You can read it there in Mark 11, verse 6. It's a strange transaction, but they willingly give everything that they have to Jesus. And when the disciples bring Jesus this colt to sit upon, the actual original language literally hints at his ascending a throne It's the picture of him being seated on something special. They take off their coats. They lay them on the donkey as a type of saddle. And it's the strange thing. What's going on here? If you're like me, you have grown up in the church for so long that we hear so many of these stories. You've been in Sunday school class your entire life. You've heard the story hundreds of times in your life and you're just not careful with the stuff in the Bible, and so you take for granted how very strange some of these stories are. This is strange. That Jesus would, before he's walking to Jerusalem, borrow someone's donkey so that he could ride in. What is he expecting to happen? So let's, for just a moment, detach ourselves from our familiarity with the story And investigate let me give you three things about what's going on here number one this animal is borrowed I know real deep stuff the animal is borrowed it might interest you to know that apart from boats this is the only vehicle that Jesus is ever recorded to ride on and contrary to what most health and wealth prosperity preachers are peddling it is nothing of note You might remember in the early thousands, late 90s, when there was a a prosperity preacher that claimed that he drove a Rolls Royce because he wanted to follow in Jesus' footsteps because if Jesus lived in his day, he'd drive a Rolls Royce. I don't know what the opposite of a Rolls Royce is, but we're getting pretty close with a borrowed, untamed donkey. Uh, I I don't see Rolls Royce in the text. It's not in the Greek, at least, that I can see. I don't know. There's beautiful symbolism of Jesus setting aside his splendor as the Son of God, becoming like one of us, becoming like one of the least of one of us. Years later, the Apostle Paul would urge Christians to have this same mindset as Jesus when we deal with others. He says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. We have a picture here of humility, not just as a means of you should be kind to others, but a picture of radical humility that Jesus was about to live out in front of us when he died on the cross. Here, this is Jesus, similar to when he said, foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus gives up everything to come to us. And here we have the scene of Jesus who created the donkey having to borrow the donkey to ride into Jerusalem. He set aside everything for you. Thought so lowly of Himself. He counted possessions so loosely in His grasp, not because it's evil to own stuff, but because He came to this world for one intent purpose and if stuff didn't fit into that purpose, He considered it worthy of laying down. So the Creator borrows a donkey. The second thing about what's going on here is this is a, not just a borrowed, but this is an unbroken animal. See, Matthew is careful to include that there are two donkeys, that there's a colt and its mother. The other Gospel writers, they zero in on the fact that the beast that Jesus actually rides into Jerusalem on is the younger of the two. He's the the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now hang with me on this. I'm not a rancher, I know. I I look like I should be. I, I get it. But this is so Unusual. Not only will this very likely be the first time that this animal has ever been ridden, but as you read on, you see that there is no corral, there are no ropes, there's no fence, there's no regimen of getting it used to having a rider on its back. On the contrary, in addition to carrying a grown man on its back for the first time, it's going to walk through busy city streets, crowded with people, screaming and throwing clothes at it and throwing branches at it. This donkey is gonna be scared out of its life, and Jesus, I'll write it, I'll take it on in there. It is a borrowed and unbroken donkey. When we talk about unbroken, there are scholars underline two points of symbolism that they believe is going on here. Number one, Jesus is showing that he is in command over nature. One of my favorite texts in all the Gospel accounts comes in the early in the book of Mark when Jesus stands at the front of the boat and He calms a storm. He's still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Similar to His authority over that storm, Jesus, Creator, is in complete control over the natural world where the unbroken becomes tame under Him. But secondly, many scholars believe that there is a sense here that an unbroken colt is a picture of Jesus. It's an animal whose sole purpose in life is to carry the load. That's why it's called a beast of burden in the technical language. And Jesus, unbroken by any and all that is about to happen to him in the week ahead, he carries a heavy burden, yet he does so obediently. He is called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He bears our burdens for us. So it's borrowed and unbroken. And the last point, you know what it is. It's a donkey. A donkey? If you're like me, you can think of a handful of other animals that would be more impressive for a king to ride in into a city on other than a donkey. I would think that a donkey would come pretty far down the list of things that you'd want to ride into Jerusalem on. And that's the exact point. It stands in utter contrast to a king on a war horse. It turns out that a donkey is actually a, a very royal animal for that purpose. It comes to us in First Kings chapter 1 when King David is passing his throne to his son Solomon. He sets Solomon on his own donkey. It was a sign of smooth transition of power between two people, an era of peace after a time of intense tribulation in the kingdom. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, thumbing his nose at Pilate or at the Roman Empire, but he is coming as one who brings peace Look at the prophecy that this writer fulfills in verse 4 of Matthew 21. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. If your copy of Scripture has a cross-reference notation to the side of it, you'll notice that this is an exact quotation from Zechariah 9.9. 9, 9. It's a passage of Scripture that follows nine visions that God gave Zechariah to preach to Israel that he will bring them into his new kingdom eventually. And he says that when the new kingdom will come, it will start, it will mark its beginning with her king riding in on a donkey's And so when Jesus, 2,000 years ago, rides into Jerusalem on a borrowed, unbroken donkey, he's saying, the kingdom of God has come to you and for you. I I want to focus in on one phrase that I've entitled the sermon. Your king is coming to you. Look at that in verse 5. Your King is coming to you. I want you to notice how if just one word were changed in that whole phrase, it would vastly change its meaning. Your. Your King is coming to you. Your. The fact that you can have Him. That you can claim him. That you can say, My king. He is your king. Your king is coming to you. The king, the one, only one who is fit to rule. Your king is right now, present action in this story, Matthew 21. Your king is. After generations of wondering whether God is still hearing your prayers, he is coming for you. And it says to. Your king is coming to you. He's not coming after you. He's not riding in to conquer you. He is coming to you. Your king is coming to To you and that last part again he's coming to you see again the personal nature of this king the fact that you can have him as your own your king is coming to you daughter of zion your king is coming to you new hope church We're going to get back into the text in just a moment, but I want you to know above all else, if you are in this room today or you're watching online, you need to know that your King has come to you and He is coming to you. We're looking at a story that is two millennia, that happened two millennia ago. And so we view it in the past, but in a very real way through His Word, right now where you are seated, your King is coming to you. He comes not on a war horse, conquering, killing. He comes in peace. He made peace for you by sacrificing Himself for you. Because in just two weeks' time, we're going to be reminded that Jesus Christ will walk, walk up Calvary's hill and He's going to bear a cross that you deserve and He's going to die a death that I deserve It will be, as scripture says, the just for the unjust, the perfect for the sinner, his life for mine. He is coming to you right now. I debated all week about doing this. I could not help but do this, though. Years ago, was a preacher in san diego california at calvary baptist church his name was sm lockridge if you've grown up in church your whole life you know that name and you know where i'm going if you have yet to hear his 66 minute long sermon entitled that's my king go home and listen to it this afternoon it will be time well spent let me Take a portion of that, not 66 minutes. Let me take a portion of that and present it to you this morning. The Bible says... He's the king of the Jews, he's the king of Israel, he's the king of righteousness, he's the king of the ages, he's the king of heaven, he's the king of glory, he's the king of kings, and he's the lord of lords. He's enduringly strong, he's entirely sincere, he's eternally steadfast, he's immortally graceful, he's imperially powerful, he's impartially merciful, that's my king, he's God's son, he's the sinner savior, he's the centerpiece of civilization, he stands alone in himself, he's august, he's unique, he's un. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine in true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. That's my king. My king. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless his mercy is everlasting his love never changes his word is enough, his grace is sufficient, his reign is righteous, his yoke is easy and his burden is light I wish I could describe him to you he's indescribable, he's incomprehensible he's invincible he's irresistible, I'm trying to tell you the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him, you can't get him out of your mind, you can't get him off of your hands you can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. And Herod couldn't kill him. The grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? That's my king. Your king is coming to You let it sink in. And let me like SM seventy years ago ask you, do you know? I found it so interesting this week in my study of this very familiar passage of scripture about what happens after Jesus gets the donkey. We know this. But if you were to just take yourselves out of the familiarity of the text, you'll see it with new eyes. And this is strange. Verse 8 says that a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, others cut down branches from trees and they spread them on the road. You'll find this reference in Leviticus all the way down to Revelation. It's always this cutting down of trees and the throwing of palm branches. It's always a sign of celebration. Something unordinary is happening. And then the multitudes who went before and those who followed them cried out saying, Hosanna, Son of David. Save now, Messiah. Messiah. You are the one who can bring salvation and so we claim it and we beg of you to bring that salvation now, Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, which is a way of saying Hosanna in the best form possible. Save to the furthest extent that you possibly can. Hosanna. then there's no way to say this the triumphal entry or the the palm sunday whatever you want to call this text it ends with this weird somber anti-climax mark tells it this way that jesus rides the donkey all the way up to to the temple he doesn't like going to the courtyard but he goes up and he He goes into the temple and he looks around. Read it for yourself, Mark 11. He looks around and then he walks away. He goes to the house where he was staying because it was late. After hours of traveling on in from the morning until then, they've gone through the city streets. For hours, he finally gets to the temple and he looks around and he sees all the bartering and and thieving and changing of money going on in his father's house, and it's as if Jesus Jesus hangs his head and he walks away. We know chronologically he'll come back the next day and he's going to do something about all that mess, but not now. So the triumphal entry ends in this somber anti-climax of almost a shoulder shrug and I, I guess I'll go back to the house. But Matthew Even He gives this weird anticlimax too. It's even stranger to me in verse 10. When He, when Jesus had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. They knew something was going on. All the city was moved. Saying, who is this? It gets a little too technical to really give the explanation but in verse 11 when it says so the multitude said it doesn't really mean that everybody in that group gave an answer it means that they were those who were leading the multitude and it seems like it's the disciples they're the ones who answer and what we have here is we have a picture of people who are celebrating a king and they don't even know who he is hosanna son of david who is he King! Save now! What's His name? We have this picture in our minds of multitudes of people all claiming Jesus to be Messiah without really knowing who He was. I think what the Lord has impressed upon me most this year in my reading this account is that you can Know Him and He will save now. Last week I made the distinction about do you know about Him or do you know Him? I've had some really good conversations, particularly among some of our younger congregants, of saying, I want to know Him. I want to make sure that I don't just know about Him. I want to know Him. I want to know Him. Power of His resurrection. I want to know Him. I'm telling you, from this account, I can t- you can know your King. He is coming to you. And He will save now. But, even if you don't recognize Him as your King, that does not change who He is there is another picture of another coronation day. It's very different from Matthew 21 where Jesus is walking or He's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. A colt of a donkey. A borrowed, unbroken donkey coming in peace. This coronation day comes in Revelation 19. And it could not be more different. Gone is the borrowed, untamed donkey. And Revelation 19.11 says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. kings and Lord of lords. Let me tell you, every knee will bow to this King. I beg you, accept the Savior riding in on a donkey in peace and do not wait for the just and righteous King and Judge who will judge His earth, who comes into His creation riding a war horse the long-suffering nature of our god is for you today your king is coming to you you do not know what tomorrow may bring i beg of you take the robe off cut down the branch and recognize him he is the true king of my life which means I have no rights I have no authority I will do what he says to do I will go where he says to go I will say what he says to say I will live my life in accordance to who he is and what he has done amen if you don't know him your king is coming to you Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.